Good morning. Yes, I'm the reason why Junior Church is going to be twice as big this morning. Um, As Pastor Dan said, uh, my name is Tyler, and I'm uh, a campus minister at the University of Delaware. Um, And in case you're newer to the church, I'll just really quickly give you our our connection. So uh, my wife was a student at Kutztown University uh, and uh, came to faith in large part through the ministry of Faith Bible Fellowship uh, over uh, over there in Fleetwood. Um, And so I'm just really grateful for uh, this congregation and for the way you guys... uh, helped lead her and introduce her to Jesus many years ago. Um, And so I met an awesome young godly woman a couple years after that. um, And you guys have uh, supported us and helped send us into our mission field. So, so grateful for you and glad to be with you and excited to be in the scriptures with you this morning. Uh, If you have a Bible, we're going to be in Psalm 19. I invite you to have your phone or your Bible in front of you and be reading along with us. Um, I'm a stereotypical dad in this sense. I have very few but very important cooking responsibilities. Uh, I don't know if any dads are like me, but my job is everything pertaining to the grill and breakfast. Anyone else have those two and those two only responsibilities when it comes to cooking? So um, my wife, often we have two newborn twins. They just turned one. And so she's often doing things with bottles that I uh, excuse myself from to help prepare breakfast for the kids. And so one morning, maybe a couple months ago, uh, I was doing eggs or cereal and whatever it was. And one of my sons asks me this question. He says, Dad, can I get something else? This is a normal question for them to ask, and I bless him to go into the fridge and get something else. He returns to the table with a huge bag of carrots and begins eating carrot after carrot after carrot during breakfast. Now, I find this very strange, as some of your faces are telling me you find this strange, but I'm not going to ruin a good thing, so I just let this happen. But meal after meal, my sons are eating handfuls and handfuls of carrots, and... (laughs) Curiosity eventually got the better of me. It probably took a couple days, but on day three or four of carrots at every single meal, I was kind of like, buddies, what? why are we doing this? He responds, well, someone at school told me that carrots give you great eyesight. This is the older one talking to me now. I was like, okay, I've heard that too. I'm not sure that'll fact check out, but why not? The other one pipes up, yeah, we're going to get x-ray vision. (laughs) Okay, sure. Again, not going to spoil a good thing. We're just going to let that ride. Um, This week, as I was reflecting on this intro to the sermon story, uh, I asked him, uh, hey, why why did you want x-ray vision? And in true, you know, four to five-year-old boy fashion, I want to look inside people's body and see their blood. (laughs) All right, checks out, checks out. Um, This psalm, Psalm 19, is about teaching us to see. Even uh, my young boys know that what we see is not all that there is to see. And we actually need to train our eyes to see and to correctly interpret what we see. Many of us look at the world around us and arrive at different conclusions. And it's not that our eyes are different, but actually our interpretive grids are different. And God, in giving us this psalm, is training our eyes to see things around us. Um, as, you, as you look at Psalm 19, I think it's structured in three very clear and easy to see uh, sections. If, if you have the ESV in front of you, they're almost broken into paragraphs or stanzas. And, and you see these three topics that the psalmist moves through. So we're going to start by looking at verses 1 to 6. And we're going to see that the psalmist is going to train us to see the skies. In verses 7 to 11, 
He will train us to see the scriptures. And in verses 12 to 14, he's going to teach us to see ourselves. And in one sense, you could say that the, the author is helping us to read. So we'll learn to read the skies, verses 1 to 6. Read the scriptures, verses 7 to 11. And read ourselves, verses 12 to 14. Let's, let's start at the beginning of the psalm. Look with me here. The heavens, read this word for me. Thank you for the one person who's awake. Are you awake, Trinity? Let's try it again. Uh, the heavens. Now, I want you to notice all the repeated words of speech in the early lines of this psalm. The second half of it says that the sky above, what's this? Proclaims. Then in verse 2, day to day pours out. What's poured out? Speech. Okay, skip down to verse 4. There, what is it? Their voice goes out, and then later on, their words go out. So over and over again, the psalmist is using this, this language of speech and says, the universe around us is screaming at us. When you walk outside and you look at everything around you, it's communicating to you. Now, given all that repetition of speech words, verse 3 is a little bit weird, because verse 3 says, there is no speech, nor are there words whose voice is not heard. What, what's happening here? I think what he's trying to help us see is the kind of speech that's coming at you in, at, through your windows, at, through your car windshields, is not the audible kind where you can hear it just right. Yet it is giving us information, and, and as our scripture reader said, this is what theologians call general revelation. I, I read this passage with my kids last night, and we, we define this as the stuff God makes that should make you stop and say, God is awesome. Are there some things that you need to re-put on your childlike self and look at and say, God is awesome? The answer is yes, Trinity. You can nod or even, even say yes if you feel so led. I think that we have grown a little bit too accustomed to this awesome world God made. Many of us navigate through the world assuming that things are just going to kind of happen or those mountains are just have always been there or just that, that this grass has always been this shade of color. And, and these things, we just, we get so used to them that we forget the awesomeness of it. This is why God gave us children to point out things that are awesome that we've become used to. Can I, can I give you an example here? God is awesome enough to give us taste buds. Right? God could have designed you and me to function. I'm going to make you hungry right now, by the way. So just prepare your, your internals. God, God could have make, made us run without sustenance. You just, you just wake up, you do your thing, you go to sleep. But God designed you and me to need fuel. But, but he didn't just make us run on gasoline or maybe water alone. He gave us this thing in our mouth that can detect bitterness and sweetness and sourness and all the complexities of flavor. What's your favorite food? Think about that. And, and that God was unique enough, creative enough even, to say, I'm, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to delight you a little bit here with a little bit of perfectly cooked steak. Amen, somebody. All right. or, or I don't know what you had for breakfast. Even, even a really nice coffee or whatever your beverage of choice is. Amen. You, you, you can enjoy these flavors and savor them because God is awesome and he creates them. I wonder if Paul had this very passage in mind when he wrote in Romans 1, for God's invisible attributes, namely his eternal power, his divine nature, have been clearly perceived since the creation of the world. 
The psalmist is not going to let this point just float in the abstract. He's going to give us an example in verses 4 to 6 where he starts talking about the sun. Look with me at verse, verse, the very end of verse 4. He says, In them he has set a tent for the sun, which comes out like a bridegroom leaving his chamber, like a strong man runs its course with joy. The psalmist says, you're supposed to look at that sun and its brightness and its heat and its power, and you're supposed to say, God is awesome. You're supposed to see how it does the same thing every, every day, how it rises and how it sets and how it runs its course and say, God is powerful, that he can not only speak that thing into existence, but tell it what to do, and it does it. And it doesn't just do it begrudgingly, but with joy. And then he gives us a, a dangerous illustration. We're going to keep this very PG. Did you see what happens in verse 5? The sun comes out like a bridegroom leaving his chamber. All right. There's a day after wedding strut. <laughs> I'm in the passage, okay? I'm right, I'm right, we're going to keep it right here. And that, that grin and that joy characterizes the son's obedience to God's command. All right, I'm moving on. There's a, there's a, there's a grin of the athlete that has trained, that's thriving in his or her craft, that finishes that, that half marathon, as it were, and has the grin on of, this is my record time. And that joy, that, that experience, that grin, is what creation puts on its proverbial face as it obeys God's decree. The psalmist here is saying, you need to put some glasses on to see God's awesomeness in the world around you. Now, how does this apply to you and me? Well, I think one application here is that you and I, as believers in Jesus, and as those that believe that everything around us, it comes from the one creator God, is we should be people that love to study God's world. The things in the natural world, the things in the society, things in, in economic, all areas of study, we should be in the front lines to learn and to study the way God designed the world to operate. I'm going to give you a, a quote from the great uh, Dutch theologian Herman Bovink. He says that scripture and theology have nothing to fear from the facts brought to light by geology, paleontology, or any other ology. I added that last part. The world, too is a book whose pages have been inscribed by God Almighty's hand. Conflict arises only because both the text of the book of Scripture and the text of the book of nature have often been badly read and poorly understood. Isn't it strange? Now, again, I, I work at a, a university, a one that's known for research and, and the academics of the world, and I often get non-Christian students that will say to me, like, oh, you're a, you're a person of faith? I respect that, but I am too scientifically minded to be one of you. I'd love to be religious or to go to church or to, to do that, but I'm just, I'm a data person. As if those ideas are in conflict. I even hear very similar sentences from those that were raised in the church that say, well, how do I reconcile being a scientific student, a STEM student, and being a person of faith? As if there's conflict somewhere. Now, if I had a full Sunday school to talk about this, we might get into some of the details down there. But, but for this point, I think it's enough to say God's people loving to study God's world has no inherent conflict. 
Would you and I be people that bless our young people into going to study without fear of what they might discover? Now, this applies not only to the scientists in the room, both of you, by the <laughs> This also applies to all of us in whatever vocation God calls us to. Let me say, I'm going to tell you my story arc. Maybe this it relates to you as well. When I first became a Christian, I was one of those people that never heard the good news of Jesus. And I was raised a little bit church adjacent, and just people never talked about sin, never talked about the cross. And so when I heard it, light bulbs go off. And for me, I instantly thought, like, this is the only thing that's worth pursuing in life. This is what we should all be doing. Why would anyone go be an engineer? Why would anybody go be a nurse? Why would we do those other things when this is what we're supposed to be about? And that was my story arc for a couple years. And eventually, especially when I realized I probably wasn't going into ministry right away, I was like, okay, well, well, maybe this work thing, this vocation that I'm called to is just a necessary evil. For many of us, we go through life maybe an inch deep in our jobs saying, the only reason I'm here is to get a paycheck so I can give some money to the church, which is the real good work. Or maybe even if you're one of those really extreme Christians, you know, you, you, well, you can also evangelize your coworker. Those are the two reasons you're here. Besides that, clock in, clock out. But there comes a moment when you start to realize that industry you're in is an industry God designed. And in some weird way, you just kicking butt in your business. You, you studying well in that laboratory, you caring for that patient in that hospital. I could go through all of the vocations, but I would run out of time and I'd also forget some of them. But, but it intersects with the kingdom of God. It's not that you take off your Christian hat to go in and be a business person, or you take off your Christian hat to go be a mom, where my mom's at. No, you bring your full Christian self there and you study this creature, this child, this patient, this industry that God made. And you're sent into that space to be an ambassador. Friends, and and I'm going to come at the generations here. Older generations, your stereotype is that you live to work. You have vacation days that you never use because you love work. All right? My generation saw that, and we were like, no, fam, we're using every vacation day that there is. My generation works to live. We're going to retire early, and and you'll find us on a beach somewhere. Who needs a church plant at a beach? I think there needs one. Like that... And, and both of us have an underappreciated uh, understanding of how God designed work. God designed work not to give us full meaning and purpose. So I don't worship my work. But God didn't make work this necessary evil that we have to do. No, God puts us in his cosmic sandbox and says, go play. Go investigate. But don't get your meaning from it. So, so I invite you this morning. What vocation has God called you into? And what would it look like to enter into that space as God's ambassador, excited to play in God's sandbox? That's our our first point. We must learn to read the skies. But as we move down to verses 7 to 11, there's an abrupt transition when God teaches us how to read the scriptures. And I think there's a question here. In my theological worlds, whenever we talk about God's general revelation, we're really, really quick to say all the things we cannot learn from general revelation. And that's true. That's true. But it's worth asking the question, if, if God's creation is screaming at us that he exists and that he's powerful and that he's awesome, 
Why do my non-Christian neighbors not see that? I had a best friend in high school who, this will tell you everything you need to know about him. He was from Texas, <laughs> like a real Bible Belt, Texas. And he would say, we would be out on the, the, the sports fields in the, in the evening and a beautiful sunset would be falling and he would point to it and he would say, take that, atheists. And it's like, okay, like, that's not a helpful apologetic, man. Like, that's not gonna, that's not gonna communicate anything. Why? Do we not all see this? I really, if you're here today and you're not a Christian, we're excited you're here. And I want to give you just a little thing to chew on. Okay, you ready for this? I acknowledge that when I look at the world around me, I put on spectacles that want to see God in it. I acknowledge that. I just want to challenge you that I think you do the same thing. Thomas Nagel's an atheist. And this is what he wrote one place. He said, deep down, I want atheism to be true. And I am made uneasy by the fact that some of the most intelligent and well-informed people I know are religious believers. It isn't just that I don't believe in God, and naturally I hope that I'm right because it's my belief. It's that I hope there is no God. I don't want there to be a God. I don't want the universe to be like that. My guess is that this cosmic authority problem is not a rare condition and that it is responsible for much of the scientism and reductionism of our time. Our tendencies it supports is the ludicrous overuse of evolutionary biology to explain everything about human life, including the human mind. Let's pause on that. I love that man's humility to say, I put glasses on when I look at the world. Would you and I admit that to our non-Christian friends? When I look at the world, I'm trying to see God there. But when you look at the world... I think you're trying to not see him there. And let's take a moment and each take our spectacles off and look at them and see whose makes more sense of all the data. Okay. God encourages us to not live only based on what we can learn about him in the world around, but to also learn about him in his word. That's why verse 7 begins with the law of the Lord is perfect, reviving the soul. That pattern of a synonym about the word that belongs to the Lord is insert adjective and then insert result happens six times in verses 7 to 11. We'll go through them really quick. The testimony, there's your synonym, of the Lord belongs to him is sure, making wise the simple. We'll do one more. Verse 8, the precepts, there's your synonym, of the Lord belongs to him are right, there's your adjective, making or rejoicing the heart over and over again. The psalmist hits us with this point. You were not designed to live without God's special auditory revelation. Did you know that even before there was sin in the world, God designed Adam and Eve to not live just by what they can read about God in nature, but by his special words. Before sin, God says, go be fruitful, multiply, fill the earth, subdue it. They wouldn't have figured out their mission if God hadn't spoke to them. Later on, there's one tree you're not supposed to eat. That one, stay away. They were not designed to know the rule book without hearing it expressly from God's words. You don't need this book just because you're sinful. You need this book because you're a human. And God designed you to live off of his special communication to him. 
I want to I highlight that six times in our passage, this isn't just information generally, it's the law of the Lord, the testimony of the Lord, the precepts of the Lord. Over and over again, it uses God's special covenant name, Yahweh, that he gave us at the burning bush with Moses back in Exodus. In the first half of the psalm, the heavens declare the glory of God, the word El. But in the second half of the psalm, his special revelation, the word of God gives us his covenant name. It shows us things about what he's like eternally, existing as Father, Son, and Spirit. It shows us how we can be saved and that we have fallen short into sin. All of this information can't just come to us from the world. It comes to us through the word. Friends, you were not designed to live off bread alone. You were designed to live off every word that comes from the mouth of God. And then he says in verse 10, this word, this book, this law, you should desire them more than gold, even fine gold. Moreover, they are sweeter than honey and drippings from the honeycomb. This word is good. Trinity, would you strive to be men and women of the word? To be people of the book. Now, I'm not going to, to give you an assessment here. That's for your pastors to do, to tell you to what degree they think you guys are or should grow into being a people of the word. But, but here I just want to point out that this is what God calls us to strive to be, to be men and women that love the word. Can I give you something to chew on? All right, young people, this is for you, okay? J. Cole, one of the top rappers of our day. I'm just going to quote the poets of our day. This is probably a first for Trinity. You guys got it. Stay with me. This is going to matter. Uh, in his song, Javari, he says that God's real and he's using me for a bigger purpose. So forget the world that would have you think that a person's worthless. Sometimes I think that these verses can help a person more than the ones that they're reading in churches on days of worship. Pause. I'll just slow down for you. He's saying that his lyrics are better than the words we just read in this book. Why? Say more, J. Cole. J. Cole. He says, no disrespect to the Lord and Savior. That's not just ego. I just observe that these words don't relate to people. Modern times are flooded with dollar signs, social media stunting, and homies just want to shine. Pause. This is true, and I think God's real. And I don't want to disrespect Jesus, but these words are dated. Do we and our lives present an apologetic that that's not true? We can say, I think often we fought a battle about 20 years ago of, is this word true? I'm not sure that's the battle of our day. The battle of our day is, do these apply to what we're going through today? Do you think they do? Better question, does your life scream that they do? It's funny, the two things that J. Cole said, our world today is a labyrinth. It's so complex. We've got people that are striving for money and fame on social media. It's like, wow, more to be desired are they than gold. That's very similar. They're sweeter than honey, more than the pleasure you can get from fame, power, recognition. It seems like this truth is pretty timeless to me. Do our lives testify that they speak to the complexities of living in 2023? That's my challenge to you. I'm not sure your non-Christian neighbor or even your neighbor that's just mowing his lawn today and not here with us, I bet his problem isn't that I hate God and I think he's not real and I think his, his Bible's full of things that aren't true. 
he's probably indifferent. Unsure if this book has anything to get him through the messiness of life. And my challenge to you is that your life would scream, this book gets me through the mess of life. Amen? Amen. How do you do this, though? I'm just going to give you some really practical idea. How do you and I grow into being a people that love the word and belong to the word, that the word is in you and you are in the word, and that it changes you with any discipline? It takes the time. You, got, you have to make the commitment. I'll, I'll speak to those that work out or eat healthy or any good habit. The first couple weeks and months are just doing it on faith. Right? You, you wake up early, you do the workout, you bring that really small green little Tupperware container of lettuce to, to work, like this is going to get me through the day. And you're just acting on faith because that night you go home and you look in the mirror and you're like, it's not working. <laughs> it takes a season. It takes time. It starts with intellect. I believe only eating that little thing and doing those crunches are going to make a difference. But after a month or two, you start to see the change. And there gets to a point where you're like, this, I, the way I feel now is better than when I had all the cake and the ice cream. That's what happens, I think, when we become men and women of the word. Step one, it's just a matter of faith. I, I don't know what I just read, but I'm going to read it again tomorrow. And, and you're doing it over and over again, and you're not sure it's working. And then one day, someone's telling you their problems, and some verse pops out of your mouth. And you're like, what just happened? <laughs> and, and you were like, wow, how did that? And then at some point, you get to this point where you're like, I never want to go back to sleeping in. It gets there but it takes the perseverance and the discipline. But the psalmist doesn't just want us to read the skies and read the scripture. He wants us to learn to read the self. Look at verse 12. In verse 12, he says, after just meditating on God's law, who can discern his errors? Declare me innocent from hidden faults. And then verse 13, keep back your servant also from presumptuous sins. Let them not have dominion over me. Let me just say, I think David here outs himself as a man deeply formed by the gospel. Did you see what he did there in verse 12? He said, I've got hidden faults. The first step in learning to read yourself is realizing your heart's so desperately sick, you can't even search out all the bad stuff in it. Like you could study your motives and behind those motives are bad motives and it's all distorted down to the core. The heart of man is desperately sick. Who can understand it? And, and David's like, Lord, I'm going to need grace that goes deeper than even my excavation tools in my heart can reach. Then he says this, again in verse 13, keep back your servant from presumptuous sins. He's like, oh, even the really bad ones, the ones that even my non-Christian neighbors would blush at. Oh, I'm capable of those too. Lord, if your grace didn't hold me back from the big list, I would do all those as well. Man, how can someone be at that place? How can they be in such a situation where they both know the, the quote-unquote, the little sins that are deep, deep in my heart that I can't even get them out, and the big sins that I know I am completely capable of doing, and put it in a poem for all of Israel to read? How does someone get to that place? Well, when we hear God's law, 
When we hear that God's standard in the covenant of works is perfect, perpetual, exact, and entire obedience for all the days of our life, when we hear that that's the standard, men go to two errors. Error number one is they just despair. If that's the standard, what's the point? And they run from God into licentiousness or into depression. On the flip side, some people say, well, the standard can't maybe be that high. No one could do it but I'm going to lower it just a tad so I can feel like I can get there and then I'll judge everyone that does it. And you see these two ways. You've got the person that runs to worldly living and pleasure because what's the point of striving to hit a standard I can't hit? And then you've got people over here that say, ah, oh, but I'm holding a couple of the standards and you're a terrible person and I feel better about myself looking at you. And these two people run this gospelist track. The first one could write some of these words. Yeah, I've got dark stuff in my heart. I'm not sure why I'm praying to God about them though, because I don't want to talk to him. Over here, they couldn't write these words because to admit their faults would be to deny the fact that they're righteous in the first place. And David is like, grace is such a beautiful thing because I can both declare and confess the darkness of my heart and do it to the God that I know I find gracious. Now, David only saw in shadow, right? Hebrews tells us that he had a type. He had a little sneak peek of what you and I get in HD. The fact that, that God was going to address the sin problem. God was going to declare people innocent of hidden faults. God was going to declare people blameless, but it wasn't going to be because they were depressed enough, nor because they were righteous enough. God was going to send his son. And when God sends the second person of the Trinity, Jesus, Jesus lives a life of perfect, perpetual, exact, and entire obedience to all of the Torah, all the law. He keeps the covenant of works. He does everything that we are supposed to do. He avoids everything we're not supposed to do in the way that he acted, in the way that he spoke, in the way that he thought. The darkest parts of our heart didn't exist in Jesus' truly human heart. Jesus is our righteousness. So therefore, when he dies on the cross, he's not dying for his own sin, his own guilt, his own problems. He's bearing ours. The punishment that brought us peace was upon him. And with his wounds, we are healed. And under that blanket of grace, this kind of radical public confession is possible. And on the other side of it, is fullness of life. Are you the kind of person that can, ex- can excavate the darkness of their heart to someone around you and yet have this little bit of a smile because it's covered by grace? When someone confronts you in the things that you've done wrong or calls you out for a way they felt mistreated, does your inner lawyer put its tie on and step out to defend? Or are you able to say, you're probably right, In fact, it's probably worse than you observed. I repent. Would you forgive me? I'm going to strive by the Spirit to do better. Those sorts of people betray that the gospel's gotten deep into the bloodstream and is changing us. The world around us can tell us that there is a God, that he's awesome and he's powerful. The law of the Lord comes and shows us how far we've fallen short of that holy God's perfect standard. And then it's grace that lets us look into our souls and to know that we are more sinful than we could possibly imagine. 
and more loved than we ever dared hope. Let's pray. Jesus, I am grateful for your word. I'm grateful for this congregation. I'm grateful for the world that you built around us. I'm grateful for the natural world that screams your goodness. I'm thankful for this book that teaches us the law and the gospel. Lord, I pray that those in this room would receive afresh the message of grace and that that would get deep into our souls and that it would change us. God, as we are commissioned and sent in a few moments as missionaries into this community and those around it, would we go as men and women whose feet are beautiful as they bring the good news that our God reigns to the world around us? Lord, I lift up this church to you, and I pray that they would know that you smile on them in Jesus' name, and that this would empower them to put sin to death in their personal life, to share Jesus with neighbors in their communal life, that as they do life together, that the gospel would inform all that they do. We ask this in Jesus' precious name and all God's people said, amen.